You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for Wednesday the 29th of March and as well as being available on Substack, you can also listen to this program on iTunes, Google Podcasts and Spotify. In today's headlines, the annual Bell Forum, which is modelled on the World Economic Forum in Davos, which draws hundreds of foreign investors and leaders to China, has kicked off on Hainan. Premier Li Chang will deliver a keynote speech Thursday. Supply chains and China's connectivity with the rest of the world were in focus at the conference on Tuesday. In a huge shake-up, Alibaba said Tuesday it will split its 220 billion US dollar business into six groups, each with the ability to raise outside funding and go public. In the most significant reorganization in the Chinese e-commerce giant's history, each business group will be managed by its own CEO and board of directors to shorten its decision-making process. And shares of Alibaba have soared over 14% in New York following the news. U.S. federal prosecutors alleged Tuesday in a new indictment that FTX co-founder Sam Bankman-Fried paid out tens of millions of dollars in bribes to at least one Chinese government official. The indictment says accounts belonging to Mr. Bankman-Fried's hedge fund, Alameda Research, were frozen by the Chinese police around November 2021. Prosecutors allege that Mr. Bankman-Fried and others directed the transfer of at least 40 million US dollars in cryptocurrency to one or more Chinese government officials in order to influence and induce them to unfreeze some of the accounts. Hong Kong's MTR Corporation will increase fares by 2.3% this year in the City Rail Operator's first ticket price rise in four years. MTR Corp last raised ticket prices in 2019 by 3.3%. And the increase is derived from a new fare adjustment formula that's based largely on the inflation rate and a wage index for transport workers. The increase means that 90% of MTR passengers will have to pay an extra 40 Hong Kong cents per trip at most. On today's programme, I'm joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl and Sunil Kashap, director of FinMet. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com and where you'll be able to drop me a message or comment on today's programme. And you'll also find there a lot more information about some of the stories discussed on today's programme. On Wall Street on Tuesday, bond yields rose for the second day in a row, with the rate on the two-year US Treasury notes rising back above 4%, putting pressure on stocks and tech names in particular. The yield on 10-year Treasuries advanced three basis points to 3.57%. The uptick in rates was a headwind for the tech-heavy Nasdaq, which shed half a percent to close at 11,716. The S&P 500 fell 0.2%, ending at 3,971. The Dow lost 38 points, or 0.1%, and closed at 32,394. The Nasdaq Golden Dragon Index of US-listed Chinese shares closed 3.5% higher, boosted by shares of Alibaba and BYD. Alibaba surged over 14% following the news of its reorganisation, and shares of EV maker BYD jumped over 4% after the company reported net income soared 446% in 2022 to about 2.4 billion US dollars after the Chinese automaker sold a record number of electric vehicles. 
Asian equities advanced on Tuesday as investors become increasingly confident that the global banking sector turmoil could be contained after regulators confirmed First Citizen Bank would buy much of the collapsed Silicon Valley Bank. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index climbed 217 points or 1.1% to 19,785. And this morning, the Hang Seng is projected to open around 110 points higher on that Alibaba news. The tech index added 0.9%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was down 0.2% at 3,245. Elsewhere in the markets, the US dollar fell to an eight-week low against a basket of currencies and Brent crude oil settled 0.7% higher. And you can get more details on the latest market movements on my daily blog at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And let's go and join our guests. We have with us Enzio von Farrell, Wealth Investment Strategist. Very good morning to you, Enzio. Morning to you, Peter. And also with us sitting in the other studio next to me is Sunil Kashap, who is Director of Finmat. Morning to you, Sunil. Good morning, Peter, and good morning, Enzio. Let's start, let's start with the Bauer Forum. It's uh, modelled on the World Economic Forum in Davos. It draws hundreds of foreign investors and leaders to China. It's kicked off on the Chinese island of Hainan. And the conference is going to be held until March the 31st in Bauer, Hainan, under the theme An Uncertain World, Solidarity and Cooperation for Development Amid Challenges. That's the name of the conference. Premier Li Chang is going to de- deliver a keynote speech Thursday. Supply chains and China's connectivity with the rest of the world were in focus at the conference on Tuesday. Enzio, we've seen at this conference and also at the Beijing one over the weekend, yeah. a lot of government officials talking about how business friendly they're going to be, how they want to attract private companies and particularly overseas companies, including US companies to come to China. Are overseas companies listening, do you think? Well, I think they're listening, but they're probably a little bit wary um, because the if Xi Jinping, as he is, is very much stressing the role of the party, uh, which is totally legitimate that he's doing this, then I think that you will find a lot of wariness as, a, as about about sort of really investing in China and maybe yet again having to give away all of the technological secrets that they have. So. Um, but I think at the end of the day, these companies have to what I call recouple with China, not decouple, not couple, but recouple with China because the the level of demand in China, the sophistication of demand in China has changed a great deal. They have to keep abreast of that. And, and companies are going to have multiple locations anyway for their supply chains, yes. aren't they? It's going to be a different sort of supply chain arrangement. It's not Adam just going to be work. one. Yeah, division of labor. Yeah, and I think so. You know, I think you're, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, so what I'm suggesting is that the more sophisticated the demand in China gets, the more they will have to divide the labor between, say, Vietnam, China, Indonesia, etc. But Sunil, please over to you. No, I agree. I, I think it's also not only about the demand in China, but also the fact is that oh, during the COVID period, a lot of companies did go overseas. They did try to set up. Uh, they have set up uh, production facilities in. Cambodia, for example, or Vietnam, uh, but the experience hasn't been very good, mm. and so I think uh, everyone does realize that you know the, the infrastructure that China has, the network of suppliers that yes. it has for different products, makes it far better than any other place. So, so the re-engagement with the um, 
with the foreign uh, companies i think is a sort of win-win situation um for for everyone because it it helps mm-hmm. bring them back and mm-hmm. and be confident about going back to the old situation perhaps with caution and like you said with they'll be wary so they wouldn't ramp up production back to the same levels they had earlier uh, but mm-hmm. at least uh, the the lion's share will still go back into china yes it seems to have changed, doesn't it? It's not just about anymore investing in Chinese manufacturing companies, multinational firms. They want a sort of more mutually beneficial um, business cooperation because the, the, the global economy is linked, obviously, to these big um, um, sort of firms. So it's a lot more about commercial collaboration, isn't it? And making sure, as you say, Sunil, it's a win-win situation. Yes, and uh, but I think NGO mentioned the right thing. Uh, I think in the past... What will be different compared to now? In the past, uh, companies were much more open in terms of sharing some of their uh, trade secrets, some of their IP, some of their technology. I think the companies now will be a bit more careful um, that if there's any cutting-edge products, if there's any new research that they have, they'll be more wary about bringing it into into China uh, compared to the past. Enzio, there's a lot of talk about opening the economy um, to sort of foreign investors. Premier Li said mm. that China's going to remain open no matter what happens. Is it sort of trying to send out a different message? Because it really is banging on this particular drum at the moment, isn't it? About how open it is uh, to foreign companies, how much private businesses are, are going to be welcome. Is, is this a real change in tune? Because private businesses have been under the thumb of rather a lot, haven't they, over the last couple of years? There's an old Latin saying that hunger is the best seasoning. I think that the local government finances in China are so appalling that the government knows that it has to actually create revenue and jobs in China itself at a local state and county level to get Mm -hmm. these things going again. And I think that that's not totally divorced from this whole what I call the recoupling of China. It seems even that local governments in some cases are actually helping uh, their own companies sort of retool overseas in places like uh, like Vietnam because, as you say, they, they need to get these businesses up and running and get them growing. Well, and also the it's just that the demand structures have changed. I mean, the richer a country gets, surprise, surprise, the more sophisticated its demand becomes. When I was doing my doctorate in Germany on multinationals going to the U.S., German multinationals, it became very clear it was not a matter of saving on labor costs, but it was very much on staying on the ball with American consumers' demand and then being able to shift supply chains and and, and supply and, and production really at the, at the flick of a finger. So that's that's what I think is behind this whole interest in, in of, of foreigners going into China. I, I think also that the the reason why China is trying to attract foreigners is also for capital. You know, clearly uh, there's been a lot of destruction of capital uh, and also foreign capital uh, into China over the last couple of years. And I think um, the Chinese have found that they need foreign capital uh, in, 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 for example, in real estate or uh, in, uh, in their capital markets. There's been really no development in the capital markets for the last five years or so. And so I think they do realize they need um the, the the expertise that the foreign entities bring in and also the capital that they bring in uh, to help support the the growth of the uh, the economy building on sunil's point the last one over 50% of the local government financial ve- financial vehicles financing vehicles bonds are now 
unrated over 50 percent which is a huge number of just so the, the 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 buyer just doesn't know what he or she is getting into anymore that shows you the desperation mm. of what of how much money they need and, and it's all very well and good though all this talk about opening up but the problem is it's coming at a time when um china's facing a very sort of uncertain global economic outlook and also it's facing um all these restrictions from the u.s government on on exports of, of technology uh to, to chinese companies how does it overcome that well uh, let me go first i think that the 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 key is that the chinese in true chinese fashion i think are wanting to pit the business community of america against the government community of america so in other words you get all these bureaucrats saying we don't want this we don't want this we don't want this and the business community is crying out loud saying but we want to go into china we want to do this we want to do that so i think that's where the real tug of war is all domestics are politics or all politics are domestic excuse me and i think that's very much the case with china on this direct investment stuff yeah uh, but it's more risky i mean the environment now is different from the environment five years ago so you're right Enzio. Mm. they've they've done yeah. this in the past and and you know the rush of prof- making profits and corporate profits uh made these companies influence um uh, washington to to pass uh, pro-China policies, or at least yes. not past anti-China policies, but the mood has changed, and I think no, you know, there's no, yes. uh, there's no appetite at all for any kind of conciliatory kind of a, a tone. Mm-hmm. So I think the U.S. corporates now actually have a very difficult uh, yes. time uh, in terms of trying to balance the mood in Washington, balance the signals uh, from Beijing, and also uh, trying to optimize their bottom lines. So it it's much more difficult. You can see even the way Tim Cook's trip is uh, is piling out. You know he's so careful about the interviews he gives. He's so careful about what he says, uh, and that's the kind of uh, scenario we're in. A lot of the CEOs have not even given any interviews. You can't see them on TV. They're there, yeah. but they don't want to appear in front of the media. So it's a very different environment now, and it, it's extremely complicated for a for a corporate CEO. Um, yes. and a corporation, U.S. corporation, to figure out how to create a balance between what Beijing wants and what Washington wants. Now, in a huge shake-up, Alibaba said Tuesday it will split its 220 billion U.S. dollar company into six business groups, each with the ability to raise outside funding and go public in the most significant reorganization in the Chinese e-commerce giant's history. And each business group is going to be managed by its own CEO and board of directors uh, to shorten its decision-making process. Enzio, how significant is is this? It's clearly the government is behind it as well, isn't it? Because Alibaba and Tencent mm. and other tech companies have have really been under under pressure um, to to go and reorganise. But uh, is this the right thing to do? Well, I think it's the classical divide and rule, an old Roman war technique, and so. I think that the government in China, from what I read months and months ago, was getting a little bit, not scared, but just nervous about the power of some of these behemoths in China. And it wanted to, to control some of their their news flow and their just, just their tech flow. So I kind of get it from the government perspective. Maybe there will be more synergy effects within Alibaba because you will be using more and more sort of smaller outfits to to – um, create ideas so it, it doesn't sound all bad to me yeah I, 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 there's two points I think two two ways to look at this firstly I think from from the 
from the general economy point of view and, and policy, it's interesting for me that we've seemed to have come full circle. If you recall, the whole change in the party's view about private enterprise started with the um, refusal or the uh, refusal to allow the ant IPO. Mm. And then, you know, you had a succession of things where uh, Jack Ma left, et cetera, et cetera. And now you're, you're sort of reversing that. Jack Ma's back. Uh, the uh, ant IPO is back on again with this, with this restructuring. And so it's, I think they're trying to now go back to where they were and try to rectify some of the mistakes they made as far as the yeah. the, the view towards yeah. the private sector. So that's as far as the, the government is concerned. As far as uh, and uh, Alibaba is concerned, I think, you know, if you look at just the, the history in terms of corporate history in the U.S., clearly when you have a situation where a corporation becomes too big, a la GE, uh, you know, you, it becomes difficult to manage and decision-making becomes difficult. So just from a uh, optimization point of view and, 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 and enhanced uh, value for shareholders, uh, you know, this breakup makes sense because each of these divisions in, in themselves are going to be very big companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so uh, that's why the stock price has gone up because, because net-net yes. it's going to be good for shareholders. Presumably, this is a model that could be used for other companies. I mean, Tencent springs to mind, and even outside of China, like Alphabets, for example, you know, if you have these huge tech giants, which governments sort of want to reduce the monopolistic nature of these companies, maybe this is the model for elsewhere. Enzo? I think so. I I think that that's probably what's going to happen. And again, I think it's very much this political force of the government quite understandably saying, I don't want these companies getting so powerful that they actually run us in Beijing or even at a local level. So I'm, I kind of, I, I get the logic of this. And also with, with, with what Sunil was saying, there will probably be more synergy effects precisely because small is, 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 is better than, than one big glob. Now, moving on, U.S. Treasuries sold off on Monday and Tuesday as investors' concerns over the banking sector eased. The yield on the policy-sensitive two-year U.S. Treasury was up seven basis points to 4.09%, although it's still trading close to 100 basis points below the Fed funds rate. Sunil, it's a chance to get your thoughts, actually, on on the banking crisis and where you think we are in it. Are we almost at the end of it, or what, what do you think? I, I wouldn't call it a banking crisis. I mean, that's why I, you know, I think for the last few days people have been calling it a crisis. It's not a crisis. It was, it was informational contagion, if you want. <laughs> uh, you know, there was just a uh, contagion. To me, it reminded me of our own experience during COVID. And you remember the run we had on toilet paper. Yes, right? it was similar to that. <laughs> it was just didn't make sense, and it's just because people, the the rumor spread that there's not going to be any toilet paper. People mm-hmm. went out and and got it, and so I think you had the same situation. What's unfolding right now is clearly there were a few banks which in, which could have been managed be- better, but they were nowhere near a situation where uh, they were close to um, a failure. And but the the run, I mean, there was a, overnight there was a interesting information that came out that um, that SVB Bank would have lost 100% of their deposits mm, in yeah. two days. Yes, they lost almost 80% in two days. And if they'd lasted another day, yeah. it would have all gone. Gone. So imagine that's never happened in the past. And so I think, you know, no bank can sustain that. So in, firstly, I would say it's not a banking crisis, right? It was, it, the, the, it, the, if you wish, it was it was a situation where, uh, social media 
created this this mm-hmm. run and and we still have that fear we saw that last week uh, with deutsche bank uh, where you know somebody shorted some cdss and somebody bought their cdss and then went out and, and spread rumors about deutsche bank and so you do have these market manipulators who are unfortunately using um markets and social media to try and um, maximize their profits mm. uh, and so that creates a situation i think in that sense this is a new event risk that's happened for banks and now the regulators and the banks have to digest it and and and, and face it but it's not a crisis in terms of any traditional bank failure kind of situation Enzo, do you give good marks for the regulators for how they've handled this in the US Treasury and governments? Well, for the big banks and for SVB, of course, because they've put their finger in the dike and they've kept it from completely flooding. But again, one can't have too many band-aids. Um, I think actually that overall you will find more bank leeriness when it comes to lending because of the perhaps higher risks beginning to make themselves felt in the u.s economy certainly if the if the lending rates rise because of a mild credit crunch then it's people who are thinking that rates are going to fall or being a little bit sloppy with their terms perhaps the fed funds rate i don't think will fall i think it will get stuck perhaps not at 5.5 not at six is what i was saying before but i think that the lending rates will pick up and that means that the bond yields have to that the bond prices have to go down because they won't like these higher long rates. I agree. I agree. I think uh, what's happening is the markets are in some sort of a you know tantrum where they they don't want to believe reality, and uh, wow. it takes time to adjust uh, to that. And that, that's that's what you're going to see over the next few weeks. So you don't believe that the markets at one point were pricing in a hundred basis points of rate cuts by the end of the year. You, you, I mean, they say no you shouldn't fight the bond markets and you shouldn't fight the Fed, but one of them's got to be wrong here, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they, they flip every day. I mean, you've seen huge yeah. volatility in bonds. And so it just reflects the fact that people don't have a view which is beyond a, a trading day. Mm. Right. So they're just taking bond, the bond traders, just taking views, just watching the momentum and following trading on that basis. So I wouldn't put too much merit into the, you know, what you see in the markets. Right, is. Just, okay. just to illustrate what he was saying, what Sunil was saying, in March, the the punters figured that, that the Fed funds would peak 5.75% this December. Now they're saying 4%. Well, that's quite a, that's quite a, quite a severe change of mind. And the flow of data hasn't changed. The, the actual see what governs uh, um, Fed policy is inflation data, economic data. The trend of that economic data hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Yes. So these guys have just tried to read Fed's mind without any basis, and mm-hmm. and and you can see the yeah. flip flop they've done. Mm. So and so huge right. volatility, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely unbelievable volatility in the bond markets. Before you go, I want to ask you. Um, about Hong Kong's new measures to attract family offices here. They rolled out several new measures now to try and attract wealthy off, uh, investors and family offices to uh, to the city. They include things like profits tax exemption for single-family offices, a new investment migration scheme, the setting up of even new art storage facilities at the international airport. Um, NZ, I've got an email 
from um, a listener to this program, from John Grove, who's chairman of Grove Industries. He said there's yes. lots of talk in the press on family offices being courted to set up in Hong Kong. Perhaps you might comment on your show. And he says one thing that comes to mind was lots of wealthy inv- individuals have moved their accounts to Singapore in recent years to ensure it's safe, although their accounts are still managed in Hong Kong. So how do you get reassurances to convince family offices their money is safe in Hong Kong with the concerns over what China might or might not do in the future? Well, I just think I think the, the, the John's question is very typically trenchant, but I think that the, the 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 result will be that you'll find more of the money being managed, the money actually physically sitting in Singapore, but the management of that money, the seeing the opportunities in the Greater Bay Area, the joint venture, the VC, and all that kind of stuff that that will remain in Hong Kong. And I think, again, like with the direct investors, these family officers want to keep their ears close to the ground to see what's happening here. But that doesn't mean that they have to put their money in Hong Kong. They can actually have it run by Singapore companies. That's right. I, I think and so, I mean, it's important to distinguish the capital markets in Hong Kong from the capital markets in Singapore. The Singapore markets tend to be more uh, the basic markets, FX, um, bonds, uh, fixed income, uh, and uh, and to some extent commodities, whereas Hong Kong has a very strong ecosystem in terms of private equity, uh, equities, uh, equity finance, etc. And I think that's why, and, th- and this is where the deals are done in terms of corporate finance, especially for the mainland. And so that's why I think the the, the you know, for somebody making decisions in terms of investment is vital to be in Hong Kong. Uh, the fact whether you'd like to have your money here versus Singapore is exactly what uh, said. I agree with that. Well, thank you both very much. You heard there Sunil Kashap, who is director of FinMet and wealth investment strategist and our regular commentator on this program, Enzio Von File. You're thank listening you. to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Joining me now on the phone from New York is normally Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic, but over stateside this morning. Good morning, William, or good evening to you, I should say. Good evening, Peter. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us. Um, let me ask you about how the banking crisis, I, I've been told this morning I shouldn't really use the word um, crisis, but uh, what's been going on in the banking sector, how that's been impacting Japan? Well, I think it's perfectly legitimate to call it a crisis. Um I think here in Japan, it has not reached crisis uh, levels, but certainly globally, I think this is certainly the biggest shock to the global system since at least 2013 during the, you know, the taper tantrum and, you know, certainly since 2008. And I think in many ways in Japan, they're watching and waiting, but there's a great deal of trepidation here for a couple of reasons. One, you know, of course, there's been a lot of speculation about the Bank of Japan stepping away from quantitative easing, I think that is now off the table. And, and you know, in the next week or so, you'll have a new BOJ governor, Governor uh, Ueda, arriving at, at Bank of Japan headquarters. And a month ago, when he first got the job, his you know his role it seemed to be to begin wrapping up quantitative easing. And now, if you look at the signals coming out of the Bank of Japan. The BOJ might be on hold for longer than expected and might even need to increase liquidity, given what's going on in the global economy. And the other issue is that Japan has more than 100 regional banks. Uh, For years now, the government's been trying to get these banks to 
consolidate, to increase efficiency, to increase digitalization, because they're basically arrayed around the country in these aging and shrinking communities. And a lot of these community banks look very kind of Silicon Valley Bank-esque <laughs> in terms of mm. their customer bases, in terms of the fact that they make all their money from mostly from buying government bonds, not making loans. And so I think here in Japan, there's a lot of worries, not that the crisis will come here exactly, but that the feedback from the crisis will change the economic trajectory here quite a bit. The problem with um, banks like Silicon Valley Bank was not so much that it was holding so many <clears throat> government bonds, it's that it didn't hedge the interest rate risk on them. So it was sort of mismanaged. How, how do you know? I mean, in the Japanese banking system, clearly, in many ways, they hold even more government bonds than the than US banks do, because yields, uh, interest rates are so low there, um, that they've got to stock up on these US government bonds. How do we know whether or not, you know, there's problems lurking in some of these banks? I mean, that's exactly the, the issue that you just raised here. One of the things is that Japan has had quantitative easing for more than 20 years now. And I think in many ways, Japanese banks have forgotten how to hedge against rising interest mm -hmm. rates. I mean, here in Japan, when when 10-year bond yields rise, uh, you know, basically a quarter of a percentage point, uh, you see the financial system um, flinch a bit. And so I think in many ways, Japan is greatly worried about the extent to which rising yields could be a shock to the system. And I don't think that banks here generally have done a very good job of hedging simply because they haven't had to in a very, very long time. And so if you do see 10-year yields, you know, rise above 0.5% towards 1%, towards 2%, that will be quite a shock uh, to, the, to the system here in Japan. So it, it could be then, as Warren Buffett says, when the when the tide goes out, you find out who's not wearing a bathing suit. We could find out uh, which <laughs> Japanese banking executives weren't wearing their bathing suits. It's funny. It's great minds thinking alike. I actually uh, wrote a Forbes column ten days ago using that very uh, that very headline. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, William, is um, Japan-China relations. A lot of focus in recent weeks and months on, on China-US relations. But what about Japan-China? Because we had a week ago these very interesting optics of um, President Xi Jinping uh, in Moscow uh, with Vladimir Putin. And then at the same time, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida um, in Kiev uh, with, with the president of, of Ukraine. Um, very interesting contrast, wasn't it? But I'm wondering, what is the state of um, Japan-China relations? They must be, I would have thought, a bit worried about things like this deepening, developing relationship between um, China and Russia, which in effect stretches across the whole of uh, sort of Eurasia now, doesn't it? That's true. I mean, it was quite a split screen recently where you had, you had basically had Xi Jinping visiting Vladimir Putin and you had Prime Minister Kushida over in Ukraine, um, you know, in Kiev with uh, President, Zelensky, uh, um, the President of Ukraine. And I think in many in many ways that was a very interesting moment where you looked at these these different split screens. But yeah, Japan is certainly very wary of the ways in which China is cozying up to Russia. And it's funny, Prime Minister Kashida he is much less of a nationalist than say Prime Minister Abe was. So I think early on there was some hope that there will be a somewhat of a détente between Japan. And China and Japan and South Korea as well um, over the last couple of years. I think you've seen more of that between Japan and South Korea. But 
to me at the moment, Japan and China are as far apart as they've been at any time in the last 10 years. And I don't really see a lot of uh, uh, appetite for improving ties here in Japan. In fact, if anything, you've seen during the Kushida era, you've seen Japan pivot more and more towards the U.S. I think that Prime Minister Kushida views Joe Biden in the White House as a much more reliable partner um, than Tokyo considered, say, Donald Trump in the past. Mm. And so I think, if anything, the U.S.-Japan alliance is growing very much stronger as we speak, and the the Japan-China alliance, uh, there isn't much to it. I mean, commercially, it's certainly there. I mean, China is Japan's biggest trading partner by a long by a long way. But in terms of diplomatic relations, things are really, really kind of frozen. I mean, those television pictures really showed which side both countries were picking, didn't they? I mean, clearly China is putting its lot in with, with Russia. Um, Fumio Kishida is, is putting his lot in with, uh, with President Biden and, uh, and the, the US's Western allies. Right. And, you know, again, you look at um, Prime Minister Kishida over there with um, President Zelensky. Um, I think a lot of Japanese felt a lot of pride when that happened. You know, I think one of the interesting things about Prime Minister Kishida is he was very quick to ally with with the U.S. effort in Ukraine. And I think for many Japanese, that was a source of pride. And early on, that gave Prime Minister Kishida uh, a nice bump in mm-hmm. his approval ratings. That's kind of waned uh, <laughs> since then. I mean, Kishida's approval ratings now are back in the, the mid-20s, partly because the economy is not doing as well as hoped. And I think in many ways, hopes that Kishida would accelerate economic reforms haven't really worked out uh, as hoped but uh, you're right i mean that split screen it has has made for some fascinating geopolitical dynamics and i suppose we shouldn't underestimate just how significant and unusual that visit was because it's the first time that a japanese prime minister has visited a country that's at war since um the second world war itself indeed no it was, it was very surprising and i think for prime minister kushida it was absolutely the right thing to do i think um and if not mistaken, that means that all leaders of G7 nations have been to Ukraine at, at this point. Mm-hmm. And I think um, Japan might have been arguably the last one. So I think in terms of closing the circle, that was a step in the right direction. And I think also at a moment where you see China cozying up to Russia, it was Japan's way of reminding Xi Jinping that um, at the moment, Japan finds a lot more partnership with the West than it does with China. And what is this uh, issue about a Japanese man who's been detained in Beijing since earlier this month of, of allegedly spying? He's an employee of Astellas Pharmaceuticals, isn't he? What, what, what is that getting a lot of publicity, a lot of attention in Japan? Because I know that Japan's foreign ministry has demanded that he be released straight away. Yes, it's gotten a lot of attention. Um, you know, I mean, China... According to the official government numbers, China has detained at least 17 Japanese nationals on alleged espionage since about 2015. And in very, very few of these cases um, have the Chinese been able to explain with any you know, credibility that the allegations uh, bear, you know, are, are, are real. And I think in many ways this is a reminder um, that relations between China and Japan, both politically and, and commercially, are very tenuous. And I think that there's a lot of skepticism here in Japan or over in Japan um, that this arrest is, uh, is a credible arrest and that it's a good one. And I think certainly the extent to which you've seen, 
you know, basically the chief, the chief cabinet secretary and the foreign minister working overtime to find out from the Chinese exactly what gives suggest the extent to which Japan is not going to take this one lying down. And it will be interesting to see if Japan does consider any kind of steps, um, sanctions, if you will. But I think this this is a bigger deal than re- more recent uh, stories over the last five years of Japanese nationals suddenly being arrested in China. So we'll see. William, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Peter. That's William Pesic, Tokyo-based journalist and author. Well, thank you for listening this morning. Please let me know what you think about the program by going over to peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com and commenting there, or you can also um, send me a message as well. I'll be back tomorrow morning when my guests will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Christopher Lee, senior partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. And with a view from South Korea is Peter Kim, who is managing director and investment strategist at KB Securities. See you tomorrow. Money Talk. 